the Read to Lead podcast, episode 30. Hi, I'm Kimberly Palmer, author of the book, The Economy of You. And you're about to enjoy a very economically friendly episode of the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. You know, we can think, oh, diminish or these are these like hot-headed, tyrannical, egomaniac leaders. Not necessarily. Some of the, the most devastating diminishers I see are leaders who are too nice to ask people to do things that are hard. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Hello and welcome. I am Jeff and this podcast is dedicated to your personal and professional growth. As each week we sit down with a successful and inspiring author, we talk about their latest book and depending on their area of expertise, their thoughts on leadership, personal development, career, marketing, business, or entrepreneurship. And in this episode, we chat with Liz Weissman, author of Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. Liz will help us understand how multiplier type leaders differ from what she calls diminisher type leaders and their varying approaches to things like managing talent, approaching mistakes, and getting things done. That's coming up next, but first, If you or someone you know is now or is soon to be involved in podcasting, I want to recommend to you an awesome way to get started. It's called Podcaster Academy, and it's a new month-long online course for anyone wanting to master the art of sounding more natural and conversational, being able to interview the pros like a pro, things like learning how to create an effective open and close for your podcast that will get you the results you need and more. This online course has been created to enable you to learn the key insights, techniques, and habits that I've mastered launching numerous successful radio shows. It's being taught live in four one-hour weekly long modules, each with a 30-minute Q&A session, and each student receives four 30-minute one-on-one coaching sessions with me. The inaugural class begins February 2014 and is just $2.97. In fact, you get two hours of training every week of the course for just $75. Currently, 16 students are registered, just room for only nine more, so don't miss out. Find out more and register right now at readtoleadpodcast.com slash academy. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash academy. Liz Weissman teaches leadership to executives around the world. She is the president of the Weissman Group, a research, leadership, and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley, California. Some of her recent clients include Apple, Dubai Bank, Nike, PayPal, Salesforce.com, and Twitter. And she's been listed on the Thinkers 50 ranking and named one of the top 10 leadership thinkers in the world. She's also a frequent guest lecturer at BYU, Harvard, the Naval Postgraduate School, Stanford, and Yale. She's a former executive at the Oracle Corporation. She's conducted significant research in the field of leadership and collective intelligence and writes for Harvard Business Review and a variety of other business and leadership journals. And she's the author of both The Multiplier Effect, Tapping the Genius Inside Our Schools, and Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter, a Wall Street Journal bestseller, and the book we'll be focusing on today. I've wanted to have Liz on the show since we launched in July 2013, so this is very exciting to have her here today. Liz, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Jeff, thank you for including me on your podcast and your show. 
I believe that if you think of leadership, Liz, as, as influence, then we're all leaders at, at one level or another. And I want to start by asking you, who is Multipliers ultimately written for? Will it benefit leaders at any level, or is it for a leader at a certain place in their career? What would you say? Well, Jeff, I, I started with this idea that Multipliers um, was for leaders in the corporate world, people who managed teams. Um, you know, whether they be first-line managers or up to senior executives. But what I found as I was continuing to work on it and been out teaching is it really is a book for leaders who are influencing people. It's for anyone who needs to get the most, the best work out of the people around them. And, you know, often companies will say, well, you know, we want you to come and talk to our individual contributors, but the message has to be probably really different, doesn't it? <laughs> and it doesn't because we all lead, we all have to get the best work out of our colleagues. And, you know, one of the, the greatest leadership challenges is individual contributors learning how to lead their senior leaders and how to get the best thinking out of them. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I started with the focus on the corporate world, but what we found is the readership of the audience for these ideas in the book has been just as um, strong out in um, nonprofits and in our school systems in particular. And parents, parents, um, people have told me that it's actually, they use it not only in their work, they use it as a parenting guide at home. And hearing that, I think reinforced something that I intuitively knew to be true is that the best leaders lead the same way at work, at home, whether they're, you know, rallying a group of friends for a volunteer project in the community or, you know, launching a new product in the workplace or putting their kids to bed at night is they're trying to lead in a way that gets people's best thinking, best work, and best contribution from them. Define for us, if you would, your definition of a multiplier-type leader and contrast that with your definition of a diminisher-type leader. Well, you know, let me start up with a diminisher because I think that's what so many people experience mm -hmm. is, you know, this was my observation that some leaders seem to get more from other people. And diminishers are leaders that I saw who were really smart and capable, but had a way of shutting down intelligence. They drain intelligence and energy and capability from the people around them. They, they tend to be so focused on their own ideas that they don't see and use genius in people around them. Often they're these, you know, kind of idea killers. They're sort of wet blankets on energy and it, creativity inside of organizations. And, but yeah, I saw these other leaders that I called multipliers who were equally smart and capable, but somehow they used their intelligence differently. They used their intelligence in a way that provoked intelligence in people around them. People, you know, um, ideas flow and energy grows and people contribute. They're leaders who use their intelligence to amplify to, you know, magnify or, or, you know, the term I use, multiply the intelligence of people around them. People do their best work. They're at their smartest around these leaders. And that's really the two different leaders that I studied and particularly studying how much of people's capability do they get. And what I found, it was shocking that multipliers get almost all of people's capability, you know, 95% of their intelligence is what came out of the research. They get that and then they grow and they stretch that. And diminishers on average across industries get less than half. 48% uh, is what came out of the first round of research. And it's a little worrisome, but when we looked at this number in school systems, 
um, we found that it dips down into 40%. And in some cultures around the world, that number dips into the 30s. Well, well to that end, uh, one, of, one of my favorite quotes from the book is, um, it isn't how much you know that matters. What matters is how much access you have to what other people know. And that quote goes on to say, it isn't just how intelligent your team members are, it's how much of that intelligence you can draw out and, and put to use. And it seems like we're often taught, I know I was in my, in my early 20s especially, that, that leading means having all the answers and thinking that you're in the position you're in because you know the most stuff. Why do you believe this is so often the norm rather than the exception? I like to think of it not even so much as the norm, it's the path of least resistance. You know, it's where modern organizations and hierarchy take us. I mean, think about it. How do we represent organization, you know, in a triangle? And where's the leader, you know, on the top of that triangle? Um, And a whole generation of leaders have grown up thinking that their role was to to have a vision, to direct, to tell, to to control. Um, About a year after the book came out, I was um, at a dinner party. I live in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of tech professionals, a lot of tech titans, you know, here in the neighborhood. And I'm at this dinner party, and sitting next to me is a CEO, a founder CEO of a large technology company, a large employer in Silicon Valley. And, and you know, he's just making dinner conversation. He says, well, you know, what's this multipliers thing I'm hearing about? Well, I mean, imagine my delight. I'm like, oh, God. You know? And of course, I want to take through the whole book, starting with chapter one. <laughs> um, okay, that's what this is, really taint command. And I'm like, okay, don't do this. Just give them the basic idea. You know, these are leaders who use their intelligence to amplify intelligence in people around them. And so it's interesting, interesting. Because, so what that means is like these, these leaders, they multiply their ideas. Well, no, not not exactly. Not, maybe not even at all, you know. And, and so I decided that this is a great coaching moment because this is a person of significant influence. And, and I re-explain this. And, and he responds with, oh, like, my bad, my bad, yeah. And he goes, these are leaders who, like, multiply themselves so that everyone around them does what they want them to do. <laughs> wrong again. <laughs> no, wrong again and, and wrong worse. And, and I realized at that point, my coaching was doing more damage <laughs> than good. And so, you know, we changed the subject to politics or religion, you know, something, something that we could see eye to eye on. Because like, what was his, his model for a leader? Like, what was his role as founder CEO? Wow. Well, if he had the answers, it was to tell everyone to do. He was the head, the brains of the organization. And, you know, he had to sort of send the neurons down to the hands and legs. So they would do what he wanted them to do. It's such a fundamentally different logic. The multiplier logic is how do I use my intelligence to provoke intelligence in other people? How do I use what I know to seed an idea? You know, to maybe frame a puzzle but not complete the puzzle. To ask a hard question. You know, to spark a debate and let other people weigh in. Um, To be able to see the genius in people around them. It's a very, very different way of leading. And it is not yet the norm, but it is changing. The critical skill of the century truly will be our ability to tap into what other people know. Uh, you know, there is too much to know. When you can Google anything, it, it, it's more a matter of access than memory at this point. You know, the, the day of the know-it-all is, is, is soon over. You know, I, I think you're the first person I've ever heard suggest that politics and religion might be a safer topic than, than management stuff. <laughs> than leadership. <laughs> than leadership, yeah. Liz breaks down the book uh, into these uh, five disciplines of multipliers uh, with a chapter dedicated to 
each of these, the talent magnet, the liberator, the challenger, the debate maker, the investor. I'd like to unpack each of these uh, just a little bit, Liz, if that's okay, starting with managing talent and, and talk about, if you would, uh, how the, the approaches differ, how a multiplier approaches managing talent versus how a diminisher would approach that. You know, the diminisher tends to play the role of the empire builder. They love to hire smart people. You know, they acquire talent, but they don't utilize that talent. Um, it's like the little knickknacks, the pretty little knickknacks in grandma's curio cabinet. <laughs> you know, pretty little objects behind glass, uh, you know, on display, but not to be used. And, and you know, they, they tend to build an empire of smart people who get systematically underutilized. The multiplier approach is they play the role of the talent magnet. And people, yes, are attracted to work for them because the experience is so exhilarating. Uh, the leader identifies people's native genius, the thing they do brilliantly, easily, and freely. Um, you know, what is it that Jeff just is natural at? What is he, what is he going to do anyway? How do I tap into that and then put that to work against our hardest problems? And and because they do that, it's such an exhilarating experience that talent flows toward these leaders, to the multipliers. When it comes to approaching mistakes, the, the, the next one, um, I've had the, the misfortune years ago of working for a leader who, I mean, the worst thing you could do was make a mistake. If you made a mistake, you, you, you try to find somewhere to hide. Uh, share with us how the multiplier and diminisher approach this area. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's really the work environment that they create. Um, the diminisher tends to create an, an environment that is tense, that is full of anxiety. They tend to play the role of the tyrant, and they're not typically yelling, chair-throwing kinds of tyrants. They just generate stress around them, mm. which means that people hold back and they play it safe. The multiplier plays the role of the liberator, giving people space to think, but not just, you know, sort of hippie-like, hey, you know, <laughs> Knock yourself out, do something creative, be brilliant. They give people space, but what they expect in exchange for that is people's best thinking. They expect people to learn from mistakes. You know, I don't know if it's because I live here in Silicon Valley, but I can tell you I'm a little tired of all the hype around, hey, fail early, fail fast, make mistakes. <laughs> the point isn't to make mistakes. The point is to create learning in the organization. Somehow we put mistakes up on some kind of pedestal, which to be honest, that pedestal is learning. Um, one of the multipliers that we studied, uh, Lutz Ziab at Microsoft, one of, one of uh, just I thought one of the most interesting managers, is his people said, around Lutz, you can make any mistake you want once. Mm. You don't dare make the same mistake twice. So they're not these kind of leaders who say, hey, you know what, you tried. You know, um, take a risk, run an experiment. If it doesn't go well, that's fine. Learn from it, but do not repeat that mistake. I think we've gone a little too crazy on this idea of let's create these sort of like mistake tolerant dumps. We found that these multipliers are really hard edged leaders. They really demand people's best work. And that, that leads right into the next area I wanted to talk about. The challenger, the last leader I had the pleasure of working for was fantastic, uh, particularly in this, this area versus sort of the, the know-it-all approach the diminisher would take in. In setting direction, share with us uh, and compare and contrast the setting direction area between multipliers and diminishers? Yeah, in terms of the way they set direction, diminishers tend to set direction based on what they see and what they know, which means they rarely ask their team to do something that they don't know how to do. Mm. 
you know, if they haven't solved for it, if they don't have the answer key, so to speak, they're rarely going to give that. And the multiplier plays a different role. They play the role of challenger rather than know-it-all. They ask big, hard questions. They give people problems that they don't have answers to. Um, you know, they put people in an uncomfortable space. And one of my favorite ways to look at it is, you know, to be a multiplier, you have to get really comfortable making other people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we, you know, we can think, oh, diminishers, these are these like hot-headed, tyrannical, egomaniac leaders. Not necessarily. Some of the, the, the most devastating diminishers I see are leaders who are too nice to ask people to do things that are hard. You know, that don't want to see people struggle. They don't want to ask for something big. You know, they're afraid of the big stretch. And we want to be stretched. Not necessarily with more work. That just leads to burnout. We want to be given harder work to do. Like, you know, this idea, it's like watch kids play video games and how they want to level up. We all want to level up. We all want to be given an opportunity, you know, to do harder work, incrementally harder. It's how we learn. It's how we grow as, as professionals and really as humans. The same leader that I mentioned a moment ago, this multiplier t- type leader, I've, I've talked about him anonymously in, in so many conversations. It's time that I out him. It, it really is. <laughs> His name is Matt Austin. He, he now is the general manager at a radio station, uh, KCBI in Dallas, uh, Texas. But, but he was really great at this next one in, in, in fostering healthy debate and conflict. And he, and he understood that, that the absence of conflict was, was actually a bad thing. Um, talk about decision-making and this contrast of the multiplier-diminisher when it comes to deciding versus consulting with, with those around you. Interesting. Um, I, I, of course, I want to hear more about this, this map. Um, <laughs> we find that the diminishers, they tend to practice sort of faux inclusion on the small decisions. You know, gee, how should we configure our cubicles? Let's, you know, I want everyone to weigh in on that. But we all know that those aren't the decisions of consequence. Um, on the decisions of consequence, the diminishers tend to play the decision maker, and they hunker down, sort of retreat into an inner circle, they make a decision, and then they run around the team, the organization, trying to get buy-in for a decision that they've already made. And we all know what that feels like, to be asked, you know, for my, your opinion on something they've already decided. I know what this is like, because every Friday night, I go through this with my husband, says, here is, where should we go to dinner tonight? And, and, you know, I, we've been married 26 years, quite happily, I would add, but I know he's already made up his mind. Um, and so I'm like, you know what, if you already made up your mind, just tell me, because this one, this is not a big issue for me. It's like, ask me for my opinion where you want it. Um, and the way of the multiplier is on the decisions of consequence. And by the way, where we go out to eat on Friday night is not one that I would consider a decision of consequence, but maybe where we go on vacation that year, that might be, it's like, that's where they let people weigh in. Um, they, they ask, they pose the question. They structure the debate. They ask people to come prepped, ready, and they let people weigh in. Now, in the end, that leader, whether it's a project leader, um, a corporate VP, or a parent, they may make the final decision. But what happens when they've given people a chance to weigh in? We find that buy-in is just a natural byproduct of that process. It's a huge time rebate for everyone. What was it that Matt did that uh, made him such a great debate maker? Well, uh, for starters, he understood, similar to the quote I shared earlier from the book, the importance of leveraging the collective brain power in the room and, and how that made everybody smarter. And, th- and that meant simply that everybody was participating in the conversation. And because those conversations and ideas often started with other people, 
you know, none of us were afraid to uh, debate or spar with our colleagues, whereas we might be uh, with the general manager. And so that fostered healthy debate, uh, sometimes heated debate. And he was careful not to step in, even though others who weren't necessarily directly participating in the conversation might feel uncomfortable because of how heated it was. But we were able to do that and do it in a healthy way because we had that foundation of trust that Pat Lencioni talks about in Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yeah. And you know what's interesting in that, Jeff, is what it also illustrates is that the very best leaders know when it's time to be big and they know when it's time to be small. You know, they don't play this kind of really consistent presence or role. Sometimes they go in big with a big question, a big idea, a big ask. But then they know when it's time to retreat and create space for other people. And not only do they create space for other people to step up, but when you play your chips sparingly like that, when the leader then comes in big, everyone listens and it's valued. We haven't tuned him out as white noise. Yeah, and he's also responsible, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, he was responsible for bringing business books into the workplace, and we read them together as a staff, and that's where my love for reading this kind of material came, and that's where it was fostered and born. And so I, I, could, I could also give him a tip of the hat to you know, the reason, or one of the main reasons why this podcast exists today. So, Matt, if you're listening, thank you very much. <laughs> oh, that is nice. Uh, now to the final one here, the investor. We're talking about getting things done and control from the diminisher side of it versus the multiplier side, which is more supportive. Yeah, you know, in terms of how they get things done, we all know how diminishers get things done. They tend to do it themselves. They micromanage. Um, and, and it goes even beyond micromanaging. They micro-do. They step in and they do the work themselves. They, you know, they're going to drag that thing across the finish line. The multiplier gets things done by shifting ownership, by taking the burden that they feel to get it done and sharing that kind of sweet burden with their team. And they let other people take the lead. They give other people ownership, but what comes with that ownership is accountability. Yeah, I mentioned that, you know, these aren't soft kind of cupcakes and kisses kinds of leaders. Like, oh, gee, you know, you didn't get it done. That's okay. You know, we'll find another really important customer next year. <laughs> it, it, they hold other people accountable. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is something um, I heard about John Chambers uh, at Cisco. And when the company was young, just sort of getting out of its startup phase, Chambers was hiring his first vice president into the company, um, a man by the name of Doug Allred, to run customer support. And he said to Doug, he said, when it comes to this part of the business, you get 51% of the vote, and I'll take 49. Mm. And I said, but, but Doug, you also get 100% of the accountability. <laughs> and I just can't think of a clearer way to tell somebody else that they're in charge than to say you have 51% of the vote. Mm. And I think this is a really helpful tool um, in collaborating just between colleagues. Um, you know, let's say, Jeff, you and I are working together on a project. We might say, okay, because I'm actually not a big believer in shared leadership. Mm. I think it's really confusing, but I love the 5149. Mm. Like, okay, we're going to work together on this. Which one of us is 51%? Okay, that's the person who's in the lead. The other person says, I'll take the 49%. Well, it doesn't mean they're ignored, that they don't contribute. Just like John Chambers didn't want to be ignored by his new VP. Consult me, use me, engage me. But in the end, I'm backing you. You know, yeah. And you get all the accountability that comes with that extra 2% <laughs> of the vote. Um, 
they're really, really clear about who is in charge. And I think it actually is what creates great collaboration. You've had the, the chance now to observe reactions to your book, and you say there's there's nearly a uh, what you call a universal three-step reaction, resonance, realization of the accidental diminisher, and resolve of the multiplier. And I'd like to break those down if we could, starting with, with resonance. Well, you know, Jeff, um, honestly, I think I was wrong about this. Um, you know, what I lay down in the book is sort of, resonance, realization that you might be an accidental diminisher, and then sort of a resolve to be a multiplier. Actually, what I found is a little bit different than this. Where it starts is this resonance that there's these diminishing leaders and multiplier leaders. And, you know, I call this phase now sort of damn diminisher. It's like we realize, man, it did not feel good to work for this person. I would avoid it at all costs. You know, going into work and being only able to give half of our capabilities is people describe it as exhausting. I mean, isn't that interesting that when we can only contribute half of our capability, it's exhausting to us? <laughs> anyway, so we, 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 we get it. We're like, oh, damn, the miniature. <laughs> and then we very quickly move to this resolve to want to be a multiplier. It's like, man, you know, these multipliers, they inspire me. I want to be a leader like this. I want to be like Matt, who Jeff talked about, or Lutz Ziab, or Sue Segal, or any number of these leaders. And then what usually happens after that is people start to think, wow, maybe I don't think I'm one of these abject diminishers, but I might not be one of these total multipliers. Is there somewhere in between? And might I be this accidental diminisher? And I think for me, that has been the big aha in this is how much of the shutting down and the diminishing of talent happens with the very best of intentions. I don't worry about these kind of tyrannical egomaniacs in the workplace. You know, we tend to know who they are. We stay away from them, but we leave companies because of them. I worry more about those of us who are well-intended leaders who, with the very best of intention, tend to be shutting it down. It might be just, you know, we've got so many ideas and we think we're sparking creativity, but no one else around us needs to think. You know, maybe we're so energetic, so enthusiastic that we're consuming all of the space in the room. You know, we're not actually um, creating contagious energy. We're sucking the oxygen out of the room. Maybe we're moving so fast nobody can keep up. Maybe our optimism, you know, this kind of positive can-do attitude that we, we put on a pedestal, you know, maybe that's actually um, shutting down risk-taking. Mm. Maybe, you know, we're not acknowledging people's struggle. Um, so I find that, that that second piece actually comes a little bit later. But that is the path of learning. Well, that, that, that final chapter goes on into detail about uh, becoming a multiplier. Before I move on uh, to some other questions not directly related to the book, Liz, uh, what else is there about the book, if, if anything, that you would like to make sure that we know? Probably the idea that I hope comes out of the book is this idea that there is unused hidden talent all around you, that, that there's latent intelligence. And I, you know, I think if there's one thing I've learned, Jeff, in this research, you know, so I study leadership, but in, in studying leadership, you, you really study followership. You can't really study leadership without seeing what it's like to follow. And I think actually followership is an art and maybe even more important than leadership. But what I have learned is that people come to work every day. We enter, you know, through the doors, whether it's a radio station or we walk into the halls of a big corporation or a small business or a startup or a school. And every day we want to give 100%. 
you know, you hear managers talk about, oh, you know, I'm not sure my people really want to step up. They want to contribute. Well, I talk to those people and it's painful for them not to. And, you know, as, as we sit in leadership roles, having some sort of accountability, whether we, you know, are people managers or trying to get a project across the finish line, trying to make a sale, that you have more resource at your disposal than might meet the eye. But you might have to ask some different questions to know how to get at it. Liz, through your through your writing and your opportunities to, uh, to speak in front of uh, uh, many, many groups, when your time on this planet is through, sort of a big picture question here, what do you hope ultimately your, your legacy to be? Well, you know, um, a couple of thoughts that come to mind. Do you remember when Google went public, when they went through the IPO? Oh, yeah. They had something written in those terms and conditions that one of their values was to do no damage. Right. In some ways, you know, I want my legacy to be to do no damage. Um, you know, one of my, my most important roles as a leader is that of a parent. And, you know, as a parent, you can get yourself all fully charged up that you have these values to instill in your kids and things to teach and things to do. It's a very busy job being a parent. I have four children um, and, you know, three still at home. My oldest is just in her freshman year at college. And you always have to do, 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 do. And when you, when you really step back, you think, you know what? I think my most important job as a parent is to just not wreck my kids <laughs> because they kind of come pretty great. <laughs> you know, they came to me like not able to do some things themselves, but they came as these like whole, perfect, beautiful people. And I think the best parents just don't wreck their children. And, and so I have to remind myself, Liz, your, your, your most important job might here be to not do damage to what is already good. And, and I can take that over into the workplace as well and to, with my team and the firm I lead and to say, First and foremost, don't do damage. Don't shut down when people really can contribute. Um, so that would probably be my first. And and um, and then if there's an aspiration beyond that, it would be I would hope that I live my life and operate in a way that it might be said, you know, people grew around her, and that's it. And I think that they are, if if, if my opinion means anything in that area. <laughs> Name for us, if you would, a couple of books you've read in the last couple of years that have had a huge impact on you, Liz, and maybe how or why they impacted you as they did. You know, that's that's interesting. That's a test question for me because I'm in the middle of writing a book right now. So I have been spending the last year just buried in research and books for my work. And, you know, I struggled initially to pull out, okay, one that just blew me away and had an impact. Mm -hmm. And um, here's a couple of... one of the, uh, some of his work I really, really like is um, Brene Brown's work, you know, Gifts of Imperfection. And I recently read Daring Greatly. And I think the idea that came out of that for me is, you know, Brene is a shame and vulnerability researcher. How's that for a job? <laughs> um, so she studies what creates shame. And, you know, I think what I've learned from that is that, you know, we are at our best when we are at our most vulnerable. And we are at our most powerful when we are vulnerable. And, you know, when I think, because I study leadership, you know, the most powerful leaders are the ones, I think, who are not perfect. I think the most powerful leaders are cracked and flawed and um, human and humble. You know, I think it is in our weakness that we um, find humility. And, you know, one can't lead like a multiplier 
unless one comes from a place of humility. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when we think about going to a movie, you know, who are the characters you identify with? Are they the superheroes or are they the people who are brave and bold, but yet are a little bit flawed and cracked? Mm-hmm. Those are the characters we tend to, you know, root for, um, and we want them to be successful. And I think if, if there's a message for leaders, it's, you know what, if you want to create an environment where people take risks, where they act boldly, where they dare greatly, to borrow Brene's term, you know, start by, by being vulnerable. Talking about your own mistakes. Some of the things we found in the research is over and over, multipliers talked about their own mistakes. You know, it's like as a parent, if you want your kids to be able to learn from their mistakes, Talk about your own. At one point, my, my kids like said to me, they're like, Mom, when we talk to Grandma, she tells very different stories about you and your childhood. <laughs> like, she tells stories of actually about you being kind of a good person and a pretty decent kid. You kind of like tell us stories about all your, you know, like, we kind of get the picture from you. You might have been a bit of a screw up. <laughs> and, and I think sometimes I go a little overboard trying to say, you know what, I've made a bunch of mistakes too. Like, it might look like I've got a bunch of things figured out. But, you know, I've struggled. I actually think it liberates your kids to say, oh, okay, so I'm not abnormal. There's not something wrong with me that I'm struggling through this. Anyway, so I love Brene Brown's um, book. And then a fun one I read recently with my son um, that I actually, I I was using for some of my research is is Phantom Tollbooth by Norton um, Juicer. And I don't know how I managed to escape childhood and college having not read this, but I think it's a brilliant tale you know, the sort of, I think he describes it um, as uh, an awakening of the lazy mind. You know, the story of a, a young boy who's bored, surrounded by toys, but totally bored, and goes on this journey through this tolbus. And, you know, it goes into this crazy, confusing line, but it, it awakens his mind. Um, and he begins to sort of operate more thoughtfully and more joyfully. So it was a really fun read. Well, great suggestions and and two that we've not had before. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, Before we wrap up, I want to know what's on the horizon for you. Uh, I know you're working on the new book. Anything else we need to know about or when the new book comes out? Do you know that yet? Well, you know, I don't know officially. It comes out in the fall. And uh, I think right now the placeholder is October 14th. But but, but the the book is, is, for me, it's been a really fun one. Um, What I've been studying for the last couple of years and writing about is why we are so often at our best when we don't know what we're doing, when we are doing something for the very first time, it's often our very best work. Mm. Why is that? And, you know, it's caused me to explore questions like, you know, when is knowing get in the way of not knowing and learning? And so I've been writing uh, this book about how to think and operate like a rookie, Um, whether you are truly brand new to something or you've been doing something for the 20th time, how to operate with this kind of, uh, this genius and capability that rookies bring to their work. So that's been, it's been a fun one. I just have a question about that. Do you think in part that's because uh, since we know we're new at it, we, we work that much harder to make it good? Is it something along those lines or is that just one possibility? Bingo. It's, it's absolutely right. You know, um, one of my least favorite reactions, um, because at this point it's just sort of friends and family who have been, you know, working with me on this. It's when people say, oh, there's you know, your book about beginner's mind. No, it really is it's far less about this kind of open slate, beginner's mind. You know, it's not really about how beginners bring all these fresh ideas. What really beginners bring to the work is desperation. <laughs> um, you know, when you don't know 
how to do something. What do you do? I mean, you have to go out and seek and you have to ask because you're really humble. And, and maybe it's, it's a book fundamentally about the difference between humility and hubris um, and how that affects our work. But it's also, you have, you have to work the tail off. <laughs> you know, you've got to just pedal faster. And, you know, we're just often in our very best space when we're doing something for the first time because we're alert, we're sharp, we've got all of our antenna up. You know, we're cautious, but we gotta, we got to punch it out kind of fast because people are watching. And, and we work hard. I, I really do see people over and over at their best. Well, Liz, as we mark the half-year anniversary of the Read to Lead podcast, I can't think of a, of a, of a better guest and a better book to talk about than you and, and your book, Multipliers. So thank you so much for doing this, for being a part of the show. We really, really appreciate it. Well, Jeff, thanks for having me, and thank you for doing this and giving people a chance to read far more than they could read on their own. So you are having that multiplier effect um, with lots of people who love to read but don't have all the time, so thank you. If you'd like to let Liz know what you thought about today's episode and the insights that she shared, and I hope you will, you can send her a tweet to at Liz Weissman on Twitter. That's at Liz, L-I-Z, Weissman, W-I-S-E-M-A-N, on Twitter. To comment on this episode and check out any of the resources that we talked about, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 030 for episode 30. Don't forget our sponsor, Podcaster Academy. Find out more at readtoleadpodcast.com slash academy. And if it's worthy of your time, I'll hope you'll take a moment to rate the podcast. A couple of ways you can do that, readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes and readtoleadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. If you give it a five-star rating and leave a written review, I'll be sure to mention you by name in an upcoming episode. To that end, I want to say thanks to juicingradio.com, who says it's an excellent saver of time, and Book Nook Atlanta, who says, how have I survived without this podcast? Thank you so much. Well, that does it for this week. I hope you found it useful and informative, and I look forward to seeing you next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Saturday I said I'm sorry Sunday came and trashed me out again I was only having fun Wasn't hurting anyone And we all enjoyed the weekend for a change I was stranded in the combat zone I walked through Bedford style alone Even rode my motorcycle in the rain You told me not to drive But I made it home alive So you said that only proves That I'm insane You may be right I may be crazy Oh, but it just may be Lunatic you're looking for Turn out the lights Don't try to save me You may be wrong For all I know But you may be right